Hello, I'm Tony Payne. And I'm Philip Jensen. Well, look how smooth we're getting in our introductions now, Philip. Mm. Um, And welcome to another edition of Two Ways News. Great to have you along with us this week. And this week, I want to come back to something that we touched on briefly a few weeks ago. Uh, This is one of those editions where we're going to chat through some ideas I have for an article, and uh, then hopefully I'll write a final draft of that article and record that. But the subject I wanted to get to came out of our discussion about Lindsay's question from a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if you remember this, Philip, but he asked a question about tribalism and about who we end up working with and why. Because he was outside of Sydney, which was the place of his original tribe. Exactly. And he's trying to figure out, well, where I am now, I need to work with people who I just am sort of slightly less tightly connected with doctrinally. We're all evangelicals together, but it's looser. And we started to talk about that question. Uh, And as part of your answer to that, if I can quote you back to yourself... I've changed my mind. (laughs) (laughs) You said, we might find ourselves having less in common with our friends than we did at home, but we still have certain fundamentals in common. And so our tribal relationships may be a little looser. And that got me to thinking about what those fundamentals really are and how we'd express them. Yes, one of the issues of trying to express them is the negative and the positive. That is, one of the ways of finding them is to find out where the limits are, what what is beyond our fundamentals, what is something that contradicts our fundamentals. So you you define the fundamentals in the negative way of, but it's not this, it's not that. Here and are our red lines. Without if, you cross, the, if you cross these... You're no longer there. Yeah. And without that negative, uh, it's, it's actually very hard to define what any fundamental is. And so there's a certain sense of this is a negative way of operating. But our fundamentals are about a positive. That is reaching out to the world with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's actually including more people. It's involving people in the the great truth of the gospel. And so there's a whole set of the New Testament passages about, you know, welcome one another, not for disputes, and allowing people to have differences over uh, what you eat, what you drink, what you wear, because those things don't matter. And the gospel is very inclusive, neither Jew nor Greek, neither Vale. It, it's aimed at an inclusiveness which is extraordinary. And if you're going to define the fundamentals, your movement will tend to be on the negative, but it's not this, not that. Well, it's interesting that you took it in that direction, Philip, because in a way that was the idea at the centre of the piece that I'm wanting to write. That is, what are these fundamentals? And not just how do we have certain red lines that exclude people from fellowship or in some way are negative in that sense. But how do those fundamentals actually stem from and express the gospel itself that unites us and that is the basis of fellowship uh, and of everything we do? So perhaps we might start by just having a look at a few Bible passages because obviously the way forward is to think, how does the New Testament itself, how do the apostles think about who are we in fellowship? What are the fundamentals? What are the kind of red lines across which we can't go, and how is that all connected to the gospel they preached? Uh, And I guess the first point I wanted to go to was probably 1 John 4. That was the place that kind of springs to mind, because there's a couple of red lines or a couple of tests in 1 John 4 about who are the people we're in fellowship with and who we're not. Um, I'll just read 1 John 4, the opening few verses. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, 
but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Well, that's clear line drawing, isn't it? The spirit of truth, the spirit of error, the Antichrist and the Christ. Yeah. And and it's about the word of God, those who listen to us, those who don't listen to us, which is, you know, uh, my sheep know my voice, says God, and it's the spirit within us that acknowledges that that is the voice of God. But it's also about content, isn't it? It's not just I hear God speaking, it's what I hear God speaking. Which is that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And so the other, the other, the two things that come out of this passage are that the apostolic word is from God, and if you're from God, you listen to our word. Um, but the first kind of big thing up the front is that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, which is a, a fascinating phrase. It's it's very packed with meaning. It's got Christ in there, so it's it's that Jesus is the world ruler. Yes, he um, is the Christ. He is the Christ. That's a great theme of the one, John. They went out from us because they don't acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ. Exactly. Yes. And the come in the flesh from God, um, it's traditionally taken as a reference to uh, the incarnation. I'm not sure it is. Uh, in fact, your son Matthew has argued at some length and persuasively, in my view, that it's more likely a reference to the fact that Jesus has appeared in the flesh, in his resurrected flesh, yes. and is is the Christ who is from God. Yes, the flesh bit surely is clearly indicates his indicate it's its incarnation. Mm. But the coming, when does he come? Is it about his first coming? or about his resurrection coming. Uh, And so you refer to uh, Matthew. Yes, his book is called uh, The Resurrection of the Incarnate Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so the the resurrection body is a physical body, is a a body of the flesh. It's, It's truly. And to deny the fleshness of the resurrection is to deny that Jesus... Is the Christ absolutely, and that God has sent Him in a sense to be the Man. The Word became flesh, as John says, the Man who, in flesh, fulfills God's purposes, who dies and rises to be God's ruler of the world in His flesh as a Man um, to fulfill God's plans for His people and His kingdom, and so on. To deny that is to deny the absolutely central thing about what God has done in Christ. There's a very interesting factor of the. Book of Common Prayer has a service for the baptism of adults. And in it, they've got to profess the Apostles' Creed. But that version of the Apostles' Creed, instead of saying, I believe in the resurrection of the body, says, I believe in the resurrection of the flesh. There is a obscure piece of information. The things you learn on Two Ways News, Philip. However, when-, when I met up with a bishop once who was telling me that Jesus rose in the body, but he didn't rise in the flesh... I was able to point out that as an Anglican bishop, he had to uphold the Book of Common Prayer 
And that includes the belief in the resurrection of the flesh. It's not just some kind of amorphous body. It actually, physically, Jesus came in the flesh. So we've got a couple of tests, as it were, here, or a couple of sense of here are some boundaries or some beliefs that are central, that are fundamentals, uh, that show us who the kind of people that we could be possibly in fellowship or the people who are from us or from God or not from God. Yes, the resurrection is such a central importance. It's not just one John, you've got one verse. You know, 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, we are most to be pitied and we are misrepresenting God and we are still in our sins. I mean, you take out the resurrection, you take out Christianity. Absolutely. Where else in the New Testament? So I'm thinking, where else are there kind of indications of here are lines you would not cross? Or here is something that creates a break in fellowship with someone. I, my mind goes to Galatians, for example, and to the question about justification and justification by faith alone. Well, chapter 1, verses 6 to 10, it it really lays out for us the the, the gospel. I mean, uh, it'd be helpful just to read those verses, I think, because it it shows that the gospel can be contradicted. It shows that there is only one gospel, that it's it's not just kind of an a piece of plastic that can be shaped into any shape depending on the context in which you are. It actually changes the context. It shows that it doesn't matter who preaches the gospel, it matters that it is the gospel. I mean, Paul talks about an angel or about himself preaching another gospel. There is only one gospel. We read that verses, what, about 6 to 10 of chapter 1. Mm, they'll do, Okay. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Or am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You see, there is only one gospel, but the gospel that is the gospel is distortable. I don't know if there is an English word distortable, but we've now got it, a neologism. It's distortable. And, and therefore you preach a contrary gospel. So there is a gospel, there is only one gospel, it's true, independent of its preacher, and it can be contradicted, it can be distorted. And in its contradiction, in its distortion, it's no longer the true gospel. And in Galatians, the particular point at which the distortion is happening has to do with the justifying work of God in Christ over against the works of the law and so on. That's right. And it's worked out in the practice of life. So in chapter 2... He opposes Peter, whom he calls Kephas, interestingly, at this point, for... Almost like Peter has lost the right to be called Peter. Anymore. Yes, he's back to his Jewishness because he is, by his attitude to eating, um, is denying the truth of the gospel. He also is a lot about circumcision. And again, we wouldn't allow Titus to be forced to be circumcised because to do that would be a denial of the truth of the gospel. Circumcision, he says, is neither here nor there. But if you have to be circumcised, then you're denying the truth of the gospel. So, strangely, justification by faith alone 
introduces Christian liberty at the same time. Freedom of opinion, freedom of action. You can eat or not eat, you know, sweet and sour pork as you like. You can be circumcised or not circumcised, doesn't matter. But once you have to eat this food and you're not allowed to eat that food, or once you have to be circumcised, well then your liberty restriction is the undermining of justification by faith alone. For freedom Christ has set you free. Do not take again the yoke, the burden. And it's interesting you point out there, and this is one of the things that is springing to mind for me as well, that these lines or these indications that the gospel is distortable, that it's possible to be not from God and to pretend to be or to say you are, is often expressed in action, not just in doctrinal statement. In fact, it's in action that we often demonstrate or instantiate our disagreement or the fact that we are believing something different. Instantiate is a wonderful word. Just what does it mean exactly? (laughs) To provide an instance of. To provide an instance of. That's that's an interesting concept. I think action incarnates truth. I presume Same that's sort what of you thing. Mean. That's what I'm saying, yeah. That's what you're saying, isn't it? That is, you and I can talk about a subject that we disagree about till the cows come home, as the old saying goes. But it's when one of us does something that our division between each other becomes so much more real. It's the instantiation of your crazy idea that actually means you and I no longer are in agreement. Or can have fellowship in the same way. So, or can have fellowship in the this, same way. That's a bit of what I'm saying. Yeah, it? and this can be immoral action. So you think of the, uh, the brother yes. in 1 Corinthians 5. Yes. Where it's the nature of his action and his lack of repentance from it that means we really cannot fellowship with him in the same way. Not until he repents. Exactly. Um, and you, you've got several differences there, haven't you? Because Paul makes it quite clear in 1 Corinthians 5. He's not talking about the non-Christian. Because uh. if the non-Christian was doing an ungodly thing, well, that's what you'd expect. And if he's not going to fellowship, if he's going to restrain fellowship with people who do these actions, you know, he, he would have no friends and no people to talk to. You have to leave the world. Yes, if you were separating from worldly brothers who did these, or worldly friends who did these worldly things. Worldly friends, yes. Uh, then you'd have to leave the world. That's right. But this but is a brother. This is someone who's professing to be Christian. Yeah. So I have a higher standard of relational connection with someone who professes to be a Christian than someone who doesn't profess to be a Christian. And for the brother to continue in fellowship with me requires repentance. For my non-Christian neighbour to to continue in non-Christianly fellowship, he doesn't have to repent. Because I'm not here to be judgmental of the world. I'm here to reach the world with the gospel. So that's why I can fellowship with all kinds of people freely and openly who hold very different moral standards. I mean, our Lord Jesus Christ, you know, ate with the sinners and the tax collectors, as Christian people should, in order to help the sinners and tax collectors come back to God. But the Christian who professes to be Christian and is the sinner and the tax collector, that's a different, that's a different kind of fellowship then. I can't fellowship as Christian with them. Because fellowship is about unity. It's about what we commune in or share or have in common in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And if you're saying that I'm communing or sharing with you, I have fellowship with you in Jesus Christ, and yet you're denying either by your words or your actions that 
Lord Jesus Christ and his authority and his word and his resurrection and his rule and all these other things, then I, I, you're actually not sharing it with me. There's a, there's a break in what we share. Yes, and it is the, the, the teaching and the actions. That is, my brother sins. Well, don't we all? <laughs> and we can have fellowship in a telephone box if we're going to exclude all people. All sinners. <laughs> sinners. That's, that's not the issue. It's got to do with repentance. But the teacher is judged with greater strictness. And so the false teacher... See, in 2, 3, John is interesting... If you fellowship with false teachers, then you are participating in their error mm. and you mustn't welcome these people. On the other hand, there's Diotrephes and Diotrephes is the patron saint of people who want to kick people out of church. You know, He won't fellowship with people. And so there's this kind of balance where you fellowship with people, accept them not for dispute and argument, because we are open to everybody, but with the the false teacher, the false prophet, the person who is not teaching the gospel but distorting the gospel, either in word or in action, or worse still, in word and action. I'd like to come back to this question of who we fellowship with in terms of the actions that they take, because it's complex um, and it affects not only the people we won't fellowship with, but also the Christian evangelical brothers we are in fellowship with, but who we find it difficult to be in church with because our actions make that difficult. I'd like to come back to that question. Right. Uh, but at this point, I just think it'd be good to summarise. We're saying that some of the key points, some of the key fundamentals here, is confessing Jesus as the Christ who is risen and is the Lord, the justification that he brings by his atoning death, by faith alone, that we trust in that, the word of the apostles, so the authority of the apostolic word, and we're saying how all that is put into action in our lives. I mean, there's, I think of Matthew 7 as well. How do you know the person who is uh, who's truly known by the Lord? It's not the person who proclaims and says, um, calls him Lord, Lord, but the person well, who does, does his, great miracles. Yes, it's the person mm. who does his will, who listens yes, and obeys. So drawing these things together in relation to what we were saying earlier, they're all connected in some way with the gospel itself. They all go to the central proclamation of the gospel, which is, I guess, why we want to say that clustering around these things and having our unity in these things is what makes us evangelicals. It's what yes. makes us gospel people because the gospel is the announcement that God has done something gracious in Christ. He sent his son to die, to rise in the flesh, to set his son as the ruler of the world, to redeem and save his people through his son. And in many ways, one of the things that strikes me about this is that all of these things are from God. It's one of those repeated phrases in 1 John 4 that from God is Jesus Christ, and you are from God, and we as the apostles are from God. It's all expressive of God's gracious initiative. I mean, that's the thing about the gospel. It's all from him, from God. And it makes me think of 1 Corinthians as well, where Paul talks about our righteousness, our sanctification, our wisdom. It's from God. Mm -hmm. And that's a theme that runs all the way through 1 Corinthians. It's all from God that you have these things. What do you have that you did not receive in chapter 4? Mm. Or is that chapter 3? No, chapter 4. And therefore, why are you boasting? Yes, you can't boast. It's all from God. And mm. it's almost another definition of what it means to be an evangelical, I think, is that you boast in the Lord 
because it's all from him. Mm. His son, his resurrection, his death, his salvation, it comes to us from him, from outside by his grace. And in some respects, all the errors, all the denials of those things are some kind of attempt to rehabilitate the place of humanity and all of that. Yes. There was a book on the evangelicals many years ago, I think by a man called King. can't remember now. But his central thing was the thing that united all evangelicals was assurance of salvation. Interesting. It was an interesting point because there's other sociological descriptions of evangelicals that, you know, they are activists, they are this, they are that, they're five points or four points. These are Bebbington's famous four points. Yeah, but they're they're a non-evangelical description of evangelicalism. Exactly, yeah. That's a sociological one. The evangelical will describe himself from the point of view of the gospel because that's what makes an evangelical an evangelical. And King, I thought, actually captured something there that if you wanted to pick on one thing that evangelicals have, it's blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Which, of course, assurance comes from what God has done, not from what I'm doing. It's only possible because of of Romans 5, because the justification comes from outside. So how much more will we be saved? Because we know we have a risen Christ who is going to be there on that last day who died to justify us by his blood. So there's there's a joy and a peace and a boasting again, like in Romans 5. Is it joy or boasting? I've never known whether to translate it as joy or boasting. But it's a the joy and boasting are very close together. Yes. There's a celebration and a joy and a uh, and a focusing on what God has done for us and demonstrated His love for us in His Son. It's a confidence. Yeah. And confidence is another way of talking about faith and assurance and confidence all go together. And thinking of it like this, that the gospel and what's so distinctive and wonderful about it is that it's all from Him. It's all from God, and therefore we boast in the Lord. Uh, and it's not from man, and it's not from the world. It put me in mind of the old quadrilateral as a way of expressing what's distinctive about evangelicals and about the authorities we have and where we put our trust and where we live and where we concentrate, as opposed to other human sources of authority and action. Now, for those of you who don't know about the old quadrilateral, I've never known, Phil, actually, can I ask you this question, just by the by? Did you get the quadrilateral from Wesley or did you, consciously, like Wesleyan quadrilateral? No, I didn't know he had one. There we go. So someone was asking me that the day. Did Philip get his quadrilateral from the Wesleyan quadrilateral of tradition? No, I'm, sure, I'm sure he got it from me. Yeah, I thought so too. Yeah. So there's the quadrilateral. <laughs> Great minds think alike, possibly. Yes, it is. I remember reading a biography of Simeon and his student work horrified the fact that hundreds of years before me, he had worked out what I should be doing. (laughs) I'm sure he got it from me. So in the quadrilateral, essentially, for those of you who haven't seen it, imagine a quadrilateral four-sided shape with four kind of zones in it. And one is the Bible zone, and then there are three kind of alternatives, if you like, or three other forms of authority or centres of action. One is human reason, one is human experience, and the other is human tradition and institutions. And classically, um, you can kind of think of these as four great streams, in a sense, within Christendom. That is, the evangelical stream that focuses on God and his word to us in the Bible as our final kind of authority, the place where we want to keep coming back to and where we want to take our stand. Liberalism and its focus on human reason and ultimately giving that the primary place in our decision-making. The charismatic movement, Pentecostalism, all forms of experience-based or experience-focused 
Christianity, and then all forms of institutional churchism, like Roman Catholicism or other kind of forms. Now, it strikes me that the quadrilateral, in a sense, expresses this. It's originally, as it's been talked about, it was a quadrilateral of authority, of where finally you place your authority and make your decisions. But in a way, it's also a quadrilateral of the gospel and of salvation, of whether it's from God and his work in Jesus Christ that we hear about in Scripture that is the place where we we stand and are saved, or whether it's by our actions, by our church uh, kind of traditions, by our experience of God. It's also a quadrilateral of the Christian life. It's a quadrilateral, in a sense, of the gospel and our response to it. But we call it a quadrilateral because it's not four points. Exactly. Christian experience, Christian reasoning, Christian uh, tradition is not necessarily contradictory to the Word of God. And so within the evangelical camp, it is right that we respect our traditions, we learn that we use our minds, that we reason, that the minds God has given us, and we will have experiences of life in the gospel of the Lord Jesus that will inform us as to how we think and work and act together. It's just when it reaches the point of contradiction between our experience and the Word of God or contradiction between what our church teaches and what the Word of God says or what our reason thinks and what the Word of God says. It's that point of contradiction that that's the boundary lines that you were looking for earlier. I think that's right, and we'll come back in a second to talking about how we know when those lines have started to be drawn and when we found ourselves on the wrong side of them. But the quadrilateral for me, I guess what I've come to in thinking about this particular subject this week, it's not just a place where you can draw lines and, and know which whether I'm now on one on the right side of the line or the wrong side of the line. It also expresses where you're from or where your authority, what drives you, um, where you live. So... Yes, the, the, the gospel, as I've been saying, it's it's the from God gospel that comes from Him in His revelation, revelation, His Son, His salvation, His Spirit. Uh, it's all from God, expressed through Scripture and Bible. That's what the Bible, part of the quadrilateral, is trying to express: the sovereignty of God and all of it. That it's all from Him and His grace. Whereas, if you're in the other zones, that's what drives you. It's kind of it's where you're from, and it's where your ideas are generated from. Yes. If you're in the other zones, you will think they're from God because you think God is mediated to us through our institution, through our church, or God is mediated to us through my visions or dreams, or God is reason, God is mediated to me by giving me a brain to think. But... Where we know from the gospel is God comes to us in the word and in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. He is the mediator and by his spirit, the word of the gospel makes his mediation clear to us. And so actually then from a gospel perspective, the other three are really human directed. They're from humans rather than from God. Yeah, it's a quadrilateral of mediation. That's another interesting way of thinking about it. Where are we what where is the truth and the salvation of God mediated to us? From yeah. God Himself through His Word and the Gospel, or through these other three. Yeah. 
But those who are in the other three think it is God they are dealing with. Mm. So let's come back to the question of who we work with, or should I say whom we work with. Well, evangelicalism has very little desire to be ecumenical because we do not have to create our unity. We have to maintain our unity. The unity is in the gospel. The unity is in the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit with whom we share. And so it is God who creates our unity through the gospel. And therefore, the whole idea of institutional uh, reorganisation is not where evangelicals are at. That is, we live in different denominations, for example, different churches, but evangelicals have always been very strong at creating the you call them the parachurch organisations, the the missionary societies, the Scripture Union, the uh, International Fellowship of Evangelical Students, and these kinds of organisations, the Bible Society, that allowed us to continue as Presbyterians or Anglicans or or Methodists or Baptists, allowed us to continue in our church relationships by things that divided us but we're able to work together because the things that unite us are far more significant than anything that divided us. Take my Baptist friends who believe in the importance of adult baptism by full immersion. If we're at Beach Mission together, we're not going to actually talk about adult baptism by full immersion to the unbelievers that we're seeking to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus to. It does divide us as a subject in the sense of, well, it's an incarnation, it's an instantiation instantiation of our belief. (laughs) But we hold together justification by faith alone and the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just more important. If you believe, as there is a church here in Sydney and around the world that believes you have to be baptised by full immersion by them, in order to be saved, well, we can't really work in preaching the gospel together because they've got a different gospel. So it's the gospel that unites, even though, as we said last time when we were discussing this subject, the gospel will create, if it is our unity, a great freedom of disagreement and discussion because we all accept by the very nature of the gospel that we're imperfect and fallible and sinful and that we'll never get everything right. But based on our unity our acceptance of the apostolic word as our authority and Jesus as our authority and it all coming from God to us, we can exhort and encourage and debate and persuade and correct each other. And in a sense, coming back to Lindsay's um, question, that's the nature of cooperation. So I would assume for someone who's in another part of Australia who's or in any part of the world and you're fellowshipping with and working with people that you don't agree about everything with, it's kind of like situation normal in many respects, isn't it? Mm it'd still be a fellowship of encouragement and mutual discussion because you want to help one another come to a closer understanding of the one common authority that you share, that is the Scripture and the Bible and Jesus Christ. If you you do share that one common one. Indeed. And if you do share it, then you can fellowship together in disagreement and you can keep discussing over time and debating about where your lines should be drawn or what practices should be undertaken. Uh, Where it becomes difficult is where, as we said before, where action takes place. So where things are done, and that 
makes sometimes it more difficult for certain levels of fellowship to happen. Yes. But we picked on that one. There's loads of them. Hmm. But the beauty of evangelicalism is we are united by the gospel and so we can join together in all kinds of common Christian activities because we are united by the great gospel even though we know that at certain points we're limited, in, for example, in our church membership, and also in what we talk about when we are in those circles. So at Katoomba Convention, which is a non-denominational Christian convention here in, uh, outside Sydney, there are certain topics that we do not actually get people to speak on because they are topics that divide us rather than topics that unite us. And because we have agreed, the old motto there was all one in Christ Jesus, that we've agreed that what we are united in is so much more important and must be preached from the platform that we do not take up these other issues in that context. In another context, we may discuss them. So, for example, then, and this comes back to what Lindsay was asking as well, in his context, he'll choose to work with people, even though he's disagreeing about certain things, because that's his context. Yes. Um, but in another context, say within the fellowship of churches who are part of Sydney Diocese, for example, you may have a real good debate and argument about certain topics, because that's the context of our fellowship. Yes. In a way that you wouldn't at Katoopa Convention, for example. It depends what you want to do together. Here's my maxim. We can work with people in as much and only in as much as we agree with them. So it depends what I'm trying to do with someone. See, I can work with a Muslim on the issue of religious instructions in state schools because we agree there should be religious instructions in state schools. I didn't think you thought there was any such thing as religion, Philip. That's what we said last week. Oh, I'm just... <laughs> hey, there's a pedant in every group. And so in as much as we agree about that, we can work together. But that we're working together on that doesn't mean that we agree about other things or we could work together on other things because that's a different a context, totally different context. And so the more we agree with someone, the more we can work with many issues. The more we disagree with people, the more we actually have to limit our working together to, to those things that we still do hold together. That's a helpful maxim. It does express a lot of what we've been saying and practically how it's put into effect. Uh, we started talking about Lindsay and his circumstance and working in a kind of uh, situation outside Sydney, but let's Finish with an example that's closer to home uh, for those of us who are Anglican. How has this been sort of worked out in terms of how we Anglicans work with other Anglicans? Because, of course, this issue comes up all the time in terms of the worldwide Anglican communion, as it's called, and the fact that there are all kinds of lines being crossed in all kinds of ways in that communion. Yeah, well, our Anglican heritage... It's supposed to be theological. That's why we have the 39 articles in the Book of Common Prayer. There's a theological statement as to what we are to believe. And in as much as Anglicans are theological Anglicans, 
They are gospel Anglicans because the 39 articles express justification by faith alone, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. It's all there. Propitiation, it's, it's spelled out for us in those formularies. But inasmuch as Anglicans have moved away from theological Anglicanism, conviction Anglicanism, to culturally being Anglican, uh, cradle Anglicanism, I'm an Anglican because I was raised an Anglican, but I don't necessarily believe the 39 articles of the Book of Common Prayer. And inasmuch as you get clergymen who no longer actually believe it, who cross their fingers when they're making promises, or bishops who are even out and out denying it, both in their teaching and also in their lifestyle, well, we can't work together. Now, there is the problem. So what is the context of Anglican unity? It claims to be God, it claims to be a church of God and the like, but if it's denying the gospel, it no longer is that. Or if it permits people to deny the gospel, it's no longer. If it tolerates the Jezebel, as Revelation 2 puts it, well, then Jesus is very strong in his denunciation of it. And so our unity, our context of unity, is reduced to a lowest common denominator. And frankly, the lowest common denominator is real estate. And so what the Anglican church worldwide becomes is very sadly, it's a religious real estate company. And it becomes a an organisation that gives license for people to use this religious real estate for whatever purpose they particularly want without great theological differentiation. You can use it to preach against the resurrection just as you can use it to preach for the resurrection provided you've got the right kind of certificate of use, lease of use from the the, the local office holder who himself may be a cradle cultural Anglican rather than a theological Anglican. And so as long as you think that you are in the church of God by being in the Anglican church, you'll be deeply disappointed. But once you understand that it's now just become a religious real estate company, uh, then the politics of it, the, the synodical government of it, is the way in which it operates and... While you might find it distasteful, that's just that's just reality. That's just life as it is. Now, I've picked the Anglicans because that's one that you and I share. The same thing's absolutely true of the Presbyterians or the Uniting Church or any church for that matter, any institutional denomination. Most of the denominations are European hangovers that have been imposed upon the world um, from a different age but now live where they are. Maybe I could help by by pointing to a couple of references. There was a great book written, I think, in the early 1970s by Robert M. Horne, H-O-R-N-E, called uh, Christian Truth and Student Witness. I think it was the other way around. I think it was Student Witness and Christian Truth, but I'm the pedant in this conversation, so never mind me. Well, we both agree that and is the middle word. And it's a terrific book. It's only a short book, but it's a terrific book. Because there is evangelicalism in the non-denominational context of university and how 
do the students relate to each other? With whom do I work? With whom don't I work? On what basis? And it's a lovely little essay on, on that topic. The other thing is, before the Lambeth Conference in 2008, uh, I gave an address which you can find on philipjensen.com called The Limits of Fellowship because we'd reached a point of actually saying to our bishops, if you go to Lambeth, it's because you are putting your fellowship with the institution of world Anglicanism ahead of your belief in the evangelical gospel. And so it was a challenge to the bishops not to go to Lambeth. And out of that time has been created a thing called GAFCON, which has been a fellowshipping of Anglicans who want to hold to theological Anglicanism rather than institutional cultural Anglicanism, which has created great strength and fellowship and encouragement and help for Anglicans across the world who were being in many ways persecuted by the institutional Anglicanism that came from the Archbishops of Canterbury. And so I'd commend you. It's called The Limits of Fellowship, and uh, you'll find the first thing I say is that the title's wrong. But it's a useful essay that you can download there. I think you can listen to it. We'll put the details of that and Robert M. Horn's book in the show notes, whatever it's actually called. We'll figure we'll get it out. the title right. We'll get the title right in the show notes, and you can chase those things up. And it's good to have further references to chase up because I think as our conversation has revealed, Philip, this is a complicated subject. In one sense, our unity in the gospel and the way we've framed that uh, is a really helpful principle that helps you think through the subject. But when it gets down to the details of how and who and when do I fellowship with people and how this works out in practice, it's not always simple. And no, it's very complex and there's a lot in the Bible about it. I was writing that essay those years ago, 2008, whatever that is, 14 or so years ago, um, that just helped me see how much of the Bible is addressing this kind of issue and the complexities that are involved in it. Because you have everything in, just in the New Testament from don't be so fractious and quarrelling about minutiae, make sure you maintain and keep your unity and stop fighting, you idiots, all the way through to, no, I will not fellowship with that person and you must not fellowship with that person and they are not from God. Yes. So you've got everything sort of well, from either end of the spectrum and in between. It says 1 Corinthians uh, 10, division must be amongst you so that the genuine can be seen. But it also says in Galatians 5, don't be divisive. Exactly. Don't be divisive is a very common mm. phrase, but also just as common as you say is this absolute necessity of, of guarding the good deposit of the gospel because in the end, that gospel that comes to us from God, Jesus Christ who comes to us from God, is the source not just of our salvation and of our revelation but of our unity. And somewhere along the line, not now, somewhere along the line we should talk about it in terms of the current key word, inclusiveness. In what way are Christians to engage with this now mantra word of our society about being inclusive? Well, there's another subject for a future Two Ways News. But thanks for being with us on this edition. It's been great to have you with us as always and really interested in your feedback on this question and how you've experienced and had to grapple with this issue where you are. We'd be really interested in your feedback and questions. 
you can get in touch with us just by pressing reply if you get the email version of Two Ways News. And let me recommend that you do sign up for the email version. It means that it gets pushed to your inbox every week, and it's very easy then to just hit reply and let us know what you're thinking. Or if you're just listening in a podcast app, as of course I guess probably many of you are with this particular version of Two Ways News, you can always get in touch just by emailing me at tonyjpain at me.com. And as we always do on each edition, let's close this episode of Two Ways News in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the revelation of your salvation that comes through your Son and through him alone. We thank you for the unity that that gives us, a unity in the gospel itself, the gospel that comes from you and not from man. And we pray, Father, that as we learn to love and trust that gospel more and more, you draw us into fellowship with each other in that gospel. And that in the complexities of having to work with each other in this sinful and infallible world, that you'd give us wisdom as we work out what it means to have fellowship and to work in partnership with one another in the gospel, and that you'd give us courage to stand firm and not to fellowship with those who deny your gospel at whatever point that is. Lord, give us wisdom, and most of all, give us faith and trust in the goodness and grace of your salvation in Jesus Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Amen.